Take your Bibles, go with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. While you're turning there, I want to give you a question to start with this morning. To whom do you go for counsel as it relates to living? To whom do you go for counsel as it relates to living? In this day and age, there are all kinds of experts, some self-proclaimed and others that we kind of put out there uh, and elevate to points of, of expertise, I guess is the right way to say that. Some of them are TV people. Some of them are your friends. It might even be a parent. But all of us have somebody to whom we look for life counsel. How do you choose your life counselor? We used to have a dog that was actually a hoodle. Have you heard of a hoodle? Are you there this morning? Make sure, breathe or something, let me know you're out there. A hoodle. It is a cross between a poodle and a human. A hoodle. This, this dog's name was Misha, and uh, we had her for about 15 years. We finally had to put her down in, I think it was March or April, something like that. And Misha grew up in our household, and our kids and my wife and I trained her to be part human and part poodle. A uh, very intelligent dog, we could say to her, uh, Misha, where's Lauren? And, yeah, I didn't mean Lauren was the hoodle, but uh, Lauren's my daughter, in case you don't know. Um, we, Lauren, we would say, where's Lauren? And she would go hide, and then the poodle would go looking all through the house for her. And if I switched it and said, where's Colin, that's our youngest son, then he would go, I mean, she would go looking for him. So she really was a pretty intelligent animal as far as that goes. And uh, so we had all kinds of fun with her through the years. But one of the things that we would do from time to time, uh, I came to, to re- think of it as uh, a hoodle tug of war. Uh, we would uh, get on different ends of the living area there. And one of us would call her and she would start coming to us. And then the one, other one on the other side of the room would call her and she would kind of be stuck in the middle back and forth. Now, we did that because I wanted to make sure that she knew that I was the alpha male of the house. And uh, when I called her, she would come to me. My daughter didn't necessarily go for that most of the time. and so, But we found one way we could always determine where she was going to go. Whoever was holding food would be the one that she would go to. Now, tell me that's not like a teenager. No offense, teenagers, but that's kind of the way it is. Now, I want to take that picture, and I want to plug it into the question that I started with. To whom do you go for life counsel? My encouragement to you this morning is that you go to the one who can feed you. And I'm not talking about just food food. I'm talking about soul food. I had a professor in college who was referring... Now, this was just a couple of years ago. I came back in contact with him through a variety of of circumstances. But uh, a friend of mine was talking to him about some of the modern push, I would prefer to call it modern heresy, uh, that we call the prosperity gospel. And uh, he was talking about one of the most notable figures. If I even mentioned one of his two names, you could fill in the other name, uh, just because he's that famous. And the message that this guy gives is very much on the prosperity gospel 
line of thinking. And my professor said the problem with that line of thinking or that theology is that it doesn't feed the soul. It's good as far as it goes and it can bull in the crowds because everybody wants to be rich and nobody wants to have any problems. But it just doesn't feed the soul. In the final analysis, that theology falls apart because it doesn't stand under the test of pressure. So back to my original question. To whom do you look for life counsel? My encouragement to you is that you go to the one who can feed your soul. Now that's Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to just make that claim and you endorse it because we're sitting in church. What I want us to do is to take that claim and let's begin the process of fleshing it out. Does it really feed the soul? Can you really count on Jesus to give you good counsel when it comes to living? Matthew chapter 5 begins a passage of Scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It is, uh, you're going to hear me say this quite a bit over the months to come, The Sermon on the Mount is the essential teaching of what it means to be Christian. Maybe say that a different way. When you go to the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus had to say about it there, then you're going to find the essential characteristics of the Christian life. If you want to know what the Christian life looks like properly lived out, study the Sermon on the Mount. That's a huge claim. And I'm going to make the claim here, and over the coming months, we're going to kind of pick this sermon apart, and we're going to kind of take each little piece of it, and we're going to roll it around in our mouths, and we're going to kind of chew on it, we're going to let it settle in real well, and you tell me at the end of the process whether it feeds the soul or not. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Well, if that's true of the Sermon on the Mount at large, then when we come to this first little section of the Sermon on the Mount, we call it the Beatitudes. We get that name from the first a word of each of these things called the Beatitudes. The English translation is blessed. Actually, the word Beatitudes comes from the Latin word that is a translation of the Greek word for blessing. We might actually change the uh, English part of that to be a little more in line with how we think and what Jesus is saying here. The word itself means to be envied. It is the response that we get in looking at somebody who seems to have it together and we step back and we go, well, I wish I had that. Another way to say it, and I think this really gets to the heart of the Greek word that's used here, the word blessed, actually we might say congratulations to this particular individual. We look at them, we recognize that something is right there and it causes us a response to saying, well, congratulations, you got it right. I I said it this way in the earlier service. I think this is the best way for me to say it because after all, we finally have endured the long, dark night and football season starts today. Ladies, that's an amen for you right there. Your husbands are now going to be out of your hair for a little while. By the time we get through with this day and go to bed tonight, we're going to be able to say, congratulations, cowboys, you got your first win. <laughs> there we go. We have one of the chosen few with us, I can tell. Why do we say congratulations to somebody? 
It's because we see something in them that says, you got it right. That's what Jesus says in these Beatitudes. Let me just go ahead and read through them. I want you to really pay attention because what we're going to do, I'm going to give you a few pieces of structure here uh, in a few moments, and then we're going to take the first one and start analyzing and pulling it apart and seeing what Jesus is saying with that. I'll say to you before I even start reading, I believe that the Beatitudes have long been overlooked in Scripture study. We've reduced them to nice, poetic kind of sayings, and we've totally missed how jam-packed they are, how dense they are with theological truth. The Beatitudes, congratulations to verse 3. Well, let me just back it up from verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just stop the reading for a second and give you one of those pieces of structure I want you to look for. Every one of these starts with the word blessed. Now, I'm going to show you or argue with you here that uh, there are actually eight Beatitudes. Verse 3 is the first one. Verse 10 is the last one. And some are going to say, wait a minute, verses 11 and 12 are Beatitudes also. Actually, verses 11 and 12 elaborate on verse 10. The structure changes, some of the language changes, and they serve as an elaboration but also as a transition into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Eight Beatitudes, and they all have this one basic characteristic. That is, they start with the word, well, two. First, they start with the word blessed, but secondly, they're divided. Each of these are into two halves. The first half of each Beatitude is a condition, or we might say a character trait. The second half of each of these Beatitudes is a promise, so in other words, we say, we hear Jesus say, congratulations to this person or this person who has this characteristic because this is what they get. Every one of these Beatitudes has that basic structure. Now you listen as we read. Again, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What we find as we come into this is this basic structure, a character trait, and a promise that is attached to it. The Beatitudes. Now... There's another thing I want you to notice. Look at verse 3 and look at the promise on it. See the back half of it? When I say the promise, I want you to think the back half of the verse. For theirs, what's the promise? Let's make sure we're all together. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 10. And the promise for that one is exactly the same as verse 3. 
What Jesus has done now is he's taking a rhetorical device, a tool of language, and in doing so, he wraps the whole thing up into one package. By saying the promise on the first one is the kingdom of heaven and the promise on the last one is the kingdom of heaven, everything in between is governed by those two bookends. So what we find then is every one of these promises that we talk about are all part and parcel of the whole that is life in the kingdom of God. Now, these are structural things, and we'll uh, reiterate these as we work through them, but that's a basic truth I want you to be looking for and holding on to. Another thing about these Beatitudes is there are eight of them, and they very definitively fall into two halves. You remember several weeks ago, and by the way, now some of those introductory sermons that I preached, I hope will start coming together for you. You remember when I preached on the two great commandments? Okay, remember that. When I ask you a question, you respond. That way I know you're awake and we're all together. You remember? They came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? And what did he say? Love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is love your neighbors yourself. The two great commandments. What we find in these Beatitudes is very neatly and very intentionally it breaks in the first half talks about our relationship with God and the second half talks about our relationship with people and the promises attached to that all fit under the kingdom of God in our lives here's what Jesus is saying then let me pull all of that together very quickly for you when we come to study the Beatitudes these are more than just a poetic introduction to the real meat of the sermon What Jesus is going to do in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to give us basic descriptors of what it means to live in the Christ-following way. The best example of what it means to live the kind of life that Jesus is talking about is his own life. When we come to the Beatitudes, then he embodies all of these character traits He also embodies all of the promises fulfilled in himself. And so what we have here is a a gem of what it means to be Christian and how that translates in our day-to-day life. So with that in mind, understanding that, that John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come, Jesus said, that you may have life that'll blow your mind. This is what it looks like. So with that in mind, let's look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me see if I can roll into it this way. One of the greatest problems that we face is pride. It's that part of us that says, I'll do this. It's a part of us that says, I don't need any help. The problem with pride is that it blocks us off from getting the help that we really do need. Pride. Take, for instance, the salesman. You, you, have you ever, I don't know what all of you do, so if you do this, then just bear with me, okay? I'm not talking about you. You, you ever had anybody come and want to sell you those knives door to door? You know the kind of knives I'm talking about? The kind of cooking, cutlery kind of stuff. They're about $9,000 for a paring knife. That's what I'm talking about. I had a guy in the church I came from in Edinburgh. 
who uh, was out of college and he was well, he decided he didn't want to go to college. He decided he would sell knives. And uh, so he came to me and he said, hey, Mr. Rotrama, you want to buy a knife? And I thought, well, you can't ever be too safe in the line of work I'm in, so uh, maybe so. And uh, so I said, uh, how much is that knife? Well, now, see, he didn't want to tell me the price. Now, that in itself told me something. So not this guy, but another guy selling the same kind of knives. It is said that he found the best way for him to sell knives. As a matter of fact, he became the top seller in his company for months at a time. Every month, top salesman. He, he stumbled on this, and then he perfected it, and here was his method. He would go from one house to the next in a neighborhood. He'd walk and knock on the door. Somebody come up, and the first thing that he would say is, uh, good afternoon, I'm such and such, and I want to show you something that every one of your neighbors that I've talked to said you could never afford. And immediately it sucked them in to that pride part that said, wait a minute, I can afford it. And he sold lots of knives that way. Think about that passage of Scripture where the Pharisee and the tax collector are praying in the same place. And the tax collector gets up and he prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee, on the other hand, stands up and he prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. In other words, I've got it going on. And so in Sunday school class, children's Sunday school class, a teacher was telling these little kids about that and worked through all the process and talking about humility and talking about pride and how it was better to be humble like that tax collector who said, God, have merciful on me, a sinner, and not be like the Pharisee who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And at the end of the class, when all the kids had gotten it and she felt like they were done, she said, Bobby, why don't you pray for us as we leave? And Bobby got up and he prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee who's full of pride. Whether we want to admit it or not, whether we want to go there or not, all of us have pride issues. And the problem, and I understand that there is a healthy pride. But we also have to understand that there's an unhealthy kind of pride. You see, the problem with pride is that it blocks us from getting the help that we need. The most basic truth there, as it relates to our spiritual lives, is at the point of salvation. Because there is that part of us that inside we cry out, I don't need God, I'll do it myself. Many religions of all varieties are tied to the basic concept that says, I can do it myself if I'll just do this and do that and don't do this and don't do that, then God will have to be pleased with me and everything will be great. Entire religions are built on this pride thing. But Scripture is pretty clear for us. In Isaiah, we have that passage that tells us that our own righteousness, in other words, the best that we can do is as filthy rags in God's sight. You know what that means? It ain't good enough. Paul mirrors that when we get over the book of Romans, and he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Pride keeps us 
from that basic point of life that we need, that help that we need, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And until you reach a point where you can say, okay, God, I can't do this. I need help. I accept Jesus Christ. Until you get to that point, there is no life for you. But that pride part of us, I've seen it hundreds of times through the years. This past week, Teresa and I received the message last Sunday that my best friend in Edinburgh's father had passed away. And I had told him before I left, he asked me if I would come do the service, and so I said I would. And so to help with my schedule, they pushed the service late in the week. And so Wednesday night after Awana, Teresa and I and Lauren left and drove all night and got down there and did a 10 o'clock funeral on Thursday for this man named Jimmy. Jimmy came to the Lord late in life. As a matter of fact, I think that he was 52, I think, when he accepted Christ. By that time, he was a successful businessman, and he was a hard-living kind of guy. And for many years, Jimmy lived the kind of life that maybe some of us are living today. It's that part of life that said, I can do it on my own. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I have going for me. And I don't need God. But Jimmy came at the point at age 52 and said, Finally, I can't do this alone. I am killing myself with living here. And he recognized that he needed a Savior. Because he came to that point today, he is alive in heaven, even though his life here on earth is done. And if you're here today, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're falling victim to that pride part that says, I'll do it on my own. Let me just give you a newsflash. It ain't going to happen. You can't do it. You can't sustain it. You need a Savior. But pride keeps us from that. That's related to entry into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see that term? Poor in spirit, it's an interesting thing what Jesus does here. He takes a term, the word poor, which would have, first of all, it would have tied in most of those people listening to him. And secondly, it tied them to their history. Teresa and I had the chance back in May, I told you that before, to go to Israel. And we went to the place that is a traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, not too far off of that, probably where it really happened, there's a Catholic shrine there, the Shrine of the Beatitudes. It's off to the side. This place where Jesus took them up is a very picturesque area. It's a natural amphitheater. There are no trees there, and it looks out over the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It is absolutely beautiful. And in that setting, he come up and all of these people who are following him from around the northern rim of the, of the Sea of Galilee and the area of uh, Canaan and all of that up there, and they come out and they follow Jesus and he goes up and he sits down and he begins to teach them. But he's teaching a bunch of people who are eking out a living on the land. They're not rich. They're not the people of Jerusalem, the religious leaders who had special homes up on the side of the hill near the temple where they were taking all of their earnings and putting them to good use and comfortable living. These are people of the land, poor people. And so when Jesus says in the beginning, blessed are the poor, then their tendency would be to latch onto that and say, hey, that's us. But Jesus takes that and he turns it on its ear because he uses a combination of words here that in all of Greek study, classical Greek literature and otherwise, this is the first place it's ever used, poor in spirit. Jesus takes a concept 
Actually, out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, we'll see that in just a second. He takes this concept and he pulls it into that first century difficult life of that average common person, and he just explodes it with meaning. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, is a messianic, song, uh, messianic prophecy. And Isaiah's talking to a group of people who are eking out a living on, uh, on the land. They've been abandoned by God, they think. And so th- through Isaiah, God gives this prophecy about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's the key word that Jesus pulls over. And in doing so, he ties their thinking to Messiah. This is no ordinary statement, the poor in spirit. Now Jesus has entered into the realm of the divine. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And what we find here is Jesus saying to them, your abilities are not enough. These people hearing that term tied to Isaiah, tied to all of the angst of a people feeling like they were uh, abandoned by God, Jesus pulls it right into the first century and he says, congratulations to you if you're poor in spirit. Why? Because that's the entry point into the kingdom. You see, here's the problem for us, this pride thing again. Jesus is poor in spirit as a condition to entry into the kingdom, but it also relates to the rest of us who have long since settled entrance into the kingdom. In other words, we're Christians and we have accepted Christ as our Savior, but yet the tendency that we have is to take that truth that we come to the cross, we fall on our face, figuratively speaking, and we say, I can't get salvation on my own. I need you, God, and I accept Jesus Christ. And so we embrace that, we fall into grace. And then we immediately stand up and say, okay, now that that's settled, I'll take care of this from here on out. And we then begin to try to live our lives, our Christian lives, in our own strength. You know what that is? That's spiritual pride. Let me tell you just how that plays out. You want to know what kind of preacher you called a couple of months ago? Let me just get transparent with you for a little bit. On this trip that we were just talking about, we left Wednesday night, drove down there. Now, nighttime driving is not too bad. Okay? Now, I would have said this before I knew of all of the law enforcement people that we have in our church. Okay, I drive the speed limit. Okay? That's not a joke. That's real, okay? I drive the speed limit, all right? I figured out a long time ago, it's a lot less stressful if you'll just do that, all right? You can drive right past those law enforcement people, and you don't have to worry. You ought to try it sometimes. It's a great way to live. But some of you think I'm lying. I know you do, but it's the truth, all right? So I'm driving. Now, well, here's what I figured out. There are two other kind of people out there. One kind of people out there driving... Well, neither one of these two go by the speed limit, okay? One group goes faster than the speed limit, okay? I see those elbows flying out there, all right? I see that. But there's another group that goes slower than the speed limit, all right? Now, so here's the deal. Eight hours down, or seven and a half, because we don't stop very much, and, uh, 
and lots of cars, deal with lots of cars. Okay, it's not too bad. We got there about 4 o'clock in the morning, roughly that. So it wasn't too bad driving through the night. Now, coming home on Friday was another thing. I was worn out, tired, just zapped. And so on the way home, I was thinking through some of the stuff for this sermon. Okay, I know it surprised you to think that I actually think about what I'm going to say before I get up here, but I really do. And so I was thinking through it, and I was driving along, and the first time that it happened to me wasn't that big of a deal, although it registered. Okay? The second time, a little bit bigger deal, and it registered for real. By the time I got to the tenth time this happened to me, I was all over it. Here's what I'm talking about. You know what a rolling roadblock is? This is one of those things where you're driving the speed limit. Now, so that rules some of you out right away, I know. But you're driving the speed limit, and somebody comes screaming up behind you, and they get in the other lane... Okay? They're not supposed to even drive in that lane unless they're passing. But they get up and then they match your speed when they get right next to you. You know what I'm talking about? Now, that's all well and good. I don't have a problem with that for the most part. Until we meet one of those other people who go slower than the speed limit. Okay? This happened to me ten different times. The tenth time we were just outside of Wharton. It was just getting dark. And this guy came screaming up behind me. And you can see it coming. You know the guy in front of you going slow. And you're kind of trying to shoot. I pull out and, you know, pass him. And, and he gets right up next to me, matches my speed. And then we're on to this guy going slow. And before I was thinking through the sermon. I was in the spirit thinking through this sermon. And before I knew it, my flesh jumped right out of my mouth. And I said... What a punk. <laughs> Just like that, Teresa said, Mark. And the Holy Spirit said, Mark. Does your Christianity work while you're driving with punks? You see what I'm talking about? Now, we'll fall into grace at the foot of the cross. Jesus, I need you for salvation. I want my eternity to be secure. But we stand right up and fall into pride after that. Okay, God, I got my fire insurance covered. Now I'm going to live the Christian life on my own. And my little driving incident there just ought to underscore the reality that we can't. We do not have the capacity to live the life that God called us to live in our own strength. You can't do it. I have a lot of respect for you and admiration for you and all of your commitment and all of that American spirit where you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But let me tell you something. You can't do it. And right here at the beginning, Jesus just underscores that in this way that's like writing it in the sky for us. You don't have what it takes. And so a condition, a character trait of one who gets it right in the Christian life is a spiritual bankruptcy, an awareness that you just don't have what it takes. Now, one of the things we're going to find as we work through these Beatitudes is one builds on the next. It's almost like a ladder. And so the, the first four, as we work towards this love God thing, uh, we're going to find that this first one kind
kind of is the ground floor. And then the next one takes it and builds on that some. And then the next one will build on that. But one of the other things we're going to find is we're going to keep coming back to number one. Because no matter how hard you try, you can't do the Christian life in your own strength. And so God says, Jesus says at the very beginning, congratulations to the one who knows he's spiritually bankrupt. And what's the promise attached to that? That guy gets all of the benefits of being in the kingdom. You know what the corollary to that is? You can try to do it all on your own, but you're going to miss out on some of God's best for you because you've got to fall on your face before a holy God and let him be God. But our spiritual pride sure gets in the way of that. So the picture that we have is that ancient picture. I don't even remember the first one who said it. I think Martin Luther got some credit for it. I'm not sure if it was him first or not. But the basic truth of this is that old saying that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to your cross I cling. How are you doing in your daily Christian life? Do you find yourself digging in on a daily basis? You wake up and say, okay, I'm going to do better today. I'm going to read my Bible today or I'm going to pray so many times a day or I'm going to witness to somebody I work with or I'm going to, you know, that attitude that's a problem for me and you just kind of suck it up and you say, I'm going to get through this. And then you fall on your face before you even get out of bed sometimes. Jesus says, acknowledge the fact that you just don't have it in you. Poor in spirit. So many people these days are claiming God's benefits. And they're working hard to get the full Christian life, the abundant life. And Jesus, I think, must step back and shake his head and say, if you'll just surrender, I'll make it happen for you. But that old stubborn sense of pride says, I can do this. You have kids at home? You know how that works. I can do it. I don't need help. And Jesus says, yes, you do. Blessed. To be congratulated are the spiritually bankrupt because they get all of the rights and privileges of life in the kingdom. I want to help you with this, this week. The practical side of all of this today is that I want to help as we work through these Beatitudes over the next eight weeks. I want to take one a week. We'll try to discuss them in here, and I'll try to pull them apart and help you understand what's there. And then through the course of the week, I'm going to make available to you, whether it's on our church website or through Facebook, if you have me friended. If you don't, then you can do that, and most of you, I'll accept your friend invitation. Uh, I'll, I'll make daily scripture readings available to you that deal with being poor in spirit this week so that you can go if it, whether it's on our website you can go there and Dory and I will work that up tomorrow we'll get it on if it's by Facebook I'll just post it in the morning and every day one passage of scripture for you to use if you've been coming on Sunday nights we've been talking about how to study your Bible now it's going to come home for you because we're going to just take what you've been learning plug it in and on a daily basis take those passages and let God teach you what it looks like to be poor in spirit. One last thing I want to say to you, and we'll say this many times. These Beatitudes are written not as commands to keep, 
but as conditions that you embody. So don't make up your mind, I'm going to be poor in spirit this week. Okay? You can't do that. Blessed are the ones who already are. Only God can do that. Let's pray. And if you're here today, and you've never taken that first step of surrender, that one that secures your salvation in Jesus Christ, then that's the place that you plug in first. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the day. You acknowledge your need for Him. You surrender your will to His and receive the life that He brings to you. That's easy to do. You just go before Him. If that's you today, then you just go in your own words, but something like this, you just say a simple prayer. God, I have tried to do it on my own and made a mess of my life. And I can't do it. And I know it. And so I receive your son, Jesus Christ, as my Savior. I surrender. I realize I have nothing to offer. And I fall into your grace. I accept Christ as my Savior. If you prayed that in just a few moments when we all stand, I'm going to invite you to just walk forward. Let us all work, talk, we'll talk with you, and then just let everybody know. We'll celebrate with you. Most of us in here made that choice. Whether we had or not, that's your choice. You've got to make that choice. Don't walk out without doing that. The fact of the matter is most of us have made that choice, but every one of us on a daily basis fall into a spiritual pride condition, and we do it on our own. Let me invite you right there where you are, just a circle around you and only you and God in that circle. That you acknowledge before him that you have a problem with pride. It's keeping you from the help that only he can give you. You surrender before him. Acknowledge a spiritual bankruptcy that gains you access to the best that God has for you pray about that, you need to talk about that, you need to rededicate your life to the Lord. That may be appropriate. We'll be down front. You can come and pray with you, talk with you. Choose now to surrender it all to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the life that you give. We ask that you would take us into your grace. Take us by the hand and walk with us as we surrender think back to that chorus, I need you more, more than yesterday, more than words can say, more than ever before, I need you more. Thank you for your love and grace in Jesus' name.